Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vakalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm joined by Hannah Durkin, the author of the brand new book, The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. It is available everywhere. And Hannah, I know that the this story has been touched upon throughout history. You've kind of taken what's been done and reworked it and made it a thousand times better by your research. But can we just briefly describe the Clotilda, where it came from, why it came to the United States, and where your research started? Yes, absolutely. So the Clotilda was um, certainly as far as we can tell, the last U.S. slave ship. And it sailed from Abeel Bay, Alabama, to Weeda in present-day Benin in, um, in the spring of 1860 and arrived back in Mobile Bay almost nine months to the day before the start of the Civil War. Um, and it has on board 110 captives, mostly children and very young people. And they are then the survivors of that, of that voyage. Probably about seven of them died on the voyage. And then scattered throughout Alabama. Um, a large cohort is, is sent to Mobile. But I was trying to trace those who'd been sent to to the cotton belt in central Alabama and um, were placed there. As you did your research, you used a lot of primary sources, and it was just shocking how many people had written these stories down from their own family heritage, from the survivors of the Clotilda. And so as you looked through them, what was the difficulty level like to decipher and try to make a consistent story about their lives here? Or did you find any consistency and each person had their own experience? Yeah, so, I mean, there is, there's a lot of consistency that... Unfortunately, the historical information is often very, very fragmentary. And you have all accounts that might be passed down by family members. Um, and again, it's trying, in many cases, it's trying to piece those stories together. And a lot of, a lot of descendants of the Clotilda survivors actually didn't know that their ancestors were on the Clotilda. They might have known that their ancestor was an African-born person, but they didn't know, simply because the history wasn't recorded or the history of the Clotilda voyage, because it was an illegal voyage, an illegal voyage, um, it's hidden in Alabama history for so long, so the survivors themselves may not have known that they were Clotilda survivors. So I was actually meeting and talking with um, a grandson of a Clotilda survivor just this past week, um, and we were talking about the fact that he didn't know until I wrote him a letter that his grandmother was actually on board the Clotilda. Um, so it's about... It's about trying to piece together the historical information, the archival sources, together with information that um, descendants might themselves have and trying to match that up in some cases, ascertain whether that particular person is, is a descendant of the Clotilda It seems like every time I've read about slavery in the United States, it starts and stops on the American soil. Your book, very early on, takes us to Africa where the, the survivors of the Clotilda, or where the, the pastors on the Clotilda were captured and describes that. And one of the things that, that jumped out to me that I was completely shocked that I read is that there were actually female captors in the African village or farming area where this happened. Can you explain the actual capturing of these and how it came to be known that there were female captors? Because that, nev- that thought never even crossed my mind. So, I mean, what's happening, of course, is that you know, with Europeans arriving to, um, to, to b- capture and buy people and sell them across the Atlantic to grow 
the economies in the Americas, what of course happens is we get um, social instability in West African societies and demographic breakdown and uh, a lot of young men and boys, of course, sold overseas to the Americas. Um, and that creates demographic disparities, which might be one of the reasons why we have women soldiers in what was the um, Dahomey Empire. And this is the last great empire in Western Africa in the 19th century, the one that's really involved in, in the sale of, of people across the Atlantic. So that leads to a rise in women soldiers, women as female military as well as a male military, probably to make up the numbers. And also, um, the Kassila survivors themselves are from the former Oyo Empire. And this was a vast empire in the sort of 17th, 18th century. And this empire was a cavalry, or the military was a cavalry, so they had horses. So they had an advantage of the Homi Empire because they could use horses, whereas on the coast, horses couldn't survive. And that might be another reason why why the Dahomey Empire used women soldiers as a way to, to grow its army because it couldn't use I'm chatting with Hannah Durkin about her brand new book, The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. is available everywhere. And, of course, there is so much to this book that we can only scratch the surface of in this chat we're having. But one of the things that I learned about, I had never heard of Africa Town in Alabama, but as the emancipation happened and the slaves were freed or let go, the survivors of the Clotilda wanted to go back to Africa, but just couldn't afford the passageway. Nobody was helping them. And so can you describe Africa Town and what happened after the after the uh, Civil War ended? Yes, yeah, so uh, a community of Clotilda survivors in just north of Mobile, they're enslaved just north of Mobile. They actually, as you, as you say, they tried to go home, they save up to go home, but obviously it's far too much money to cross the Atlantic. And so by about 1870, so five years after they've uh, secured their freedom, they start to buy the land just north of the Beale Bay, and they create their own town. They name African Town, which still exists today. It's now known as Africa Town. Um, and they create this really prosperous community by, you know, by working in the sawmills to save money, by um, the women work the land to grow vegetables. And they grow all kinds of vegetables. But pumpkins, grapes, figs, everything you can imagine. And it's this really prosperous, thriving community. By the early 20th century, it's um, a community of about two to 3,000 people. And uh, most people there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an African-American community. Most of the people there own their own businesses. So it's black-based businesses. And it's a thriving community. They also found their own church um, and their own schools. And they actually um, call upon the state to provide them with a teacher. And this this school um, that survives today and is a thriving centre. So they create this amazing uh, community all of their own, in which they work to hold on to their cultural traditions and their spiritual traditions, even as they convert to Christianity. This story, not this particular story, but the story about the Clotilda and its survivors, has been told in some form. Various. Uh, people through the United States. Zora Neale Hurston did a, uh, a, well, her estate released a posthumous book. But coming at this from a perspective of uh, somebody in academia in the UK, did you get a different perspective on this than somebody that's gone through the American version of maybe a sanitized version of this story? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I was very aware of the fact that, I mean, I tried to sort of put it in the, in the global context because, of course, 12 and a half million people were trafficked across the Atlantic. And um, not, only, uh, not all of them survived, of course, but about uh, more than one and a half million people died on the voyage. But I was trying to situate it within the illegal slave trade as a whole. I mean, the, um, of course, the, the, U, the British Empire ends its slave trade in 1807 and the United States so in 1808, um, but this illegal trade continued probably well into the 1870s, and so I was trying to trying to situate the Clotilda story within that that wider history of um, of human trafficking in the 19th century. Um, but also, of course, when writing this story, it was about trying to find as many of the survivors as we as I possibly could because we. I think we, we had the names of about maybe 30 survivors, um, and I've, tr I've sort of hope I brought that closer to about 80 or 90 uh, people who were on board the Clotilda. And of course, they're living well into the 20th century. The last of them dies in 1930. And of course, the Clotilda was burned and sunk and was recently discovered, as recent as uh, four or five years ago, in a river in Mississippi. Are you in the camp that thinks the entire ship should be excavated, or should we leave it where it is? Well, I was talking to a descendant, more than one descendant, about this this week, and she was saying that the amount of money that it would take to to raise it and then to preserve it, um, that money could be better spent um, in Africa town and, and just generally benefiting people. So she's, I, I, I can see totally see her perspective there. But, um, and also, of course, about seven people died on the Clotilda, it's the, it's the nearest thing those people have to a grave, so we have to be very, very respectful of well, that's an amazing story. It, it read at the same pace as a thriller, just I couldn't put it down. The book is The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade by Hannah Durkin. The book is available everywhere. Hannah, a fantastic story that you've preserved for us with these pages, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Thank you. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Matilda's 